Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the city of Hamilton has extended its declaration of emergency by another two weeks to help stop the spread of COVID-19. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to talk about that. The Prime Minister, Andrew Scheer, and various other MPs are taking their pay raise, but they're donating it to local charities. And also, Parliament may be recalled to pass the measures for that wage subsidy program. And the Ontario government has extended the closure of schools at least until the first week of May due to COVID-19. What's the plan moving forward? Well, we'll talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The City of Hamilton has extended its declaration of emergency services to stop the spread of COVID-19 for at least another two weeks, ending April 13th. Joining us to talk about this and the implications, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you today? Very good, Bill. Thank you. How are you? Uh, doing well. Uh, doing well. Yeah. Practicing uh, physical distancing, as most of us, as all of us, should be at this stage right now. Uh, really, I, I know there's some other things we're going to talk about here, but that's, it's for the average individual. That's really the best defense we've got, isn't it? Uh, it is uh, the the front line defense. In fact, uh, you know, we, uh, we we tend to think of our healthcare workers as the front line, and uh, you know, they're they're really the backstop. Uh, what we need to do is everyone in our community is the front line. Uh, if we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing, then we're we're going to stop this spread, and uh, and then we can rely on our healthcare system to look after all the people that are sick. So, you know, you know I, I want to turn it around and say, you know, all of our citizens are the front line of if we call it a war on the virus, then they're the front line. They need to do uh, what we're asking them to do, as difficult as it is, and uh, and keep doing it for you know a fair bit longer. And I think yesterday uh, we also set out uh, May 25th as the potential date that we may kind of restart services in our community, but uh, totally reliant on uh, what this virus does. So I, I think it's uh, setting out an expectation that this is not just going to be a few more weeks. It's uh, it, it could very well be uh, you know a month or more before we get down to uh, some sense of where this is all going to go over the over the summer. So people need to be patient. Uh, they need to be kind. They need to help one another. And uh, right now it's bill time. Lots of rents are coming due. Uh, mortgages are coming due. You know, I would certainly ask landlords to be uh, be helpful. Uh, I know that they're going to work on a case by case basis in many instances to uh, help people that uh, need help and maybe do some forgiveness or a, de- a deferral. And uh, and you know, mortgages are coming due, and I know the banks are you know exercising some judgment in terms of helping people through. And you know, and family members could think about uh, helping one another as well. And in many families, uh, some are doing better than others, some are in different circumstances. You know, whatever we can do to help one another get through this, we should be doing in every way possible. So I'm just asking for the community at large to uh, open their hearts with kindness today and for the rest of this period to ensure that we all come out of this uh, in some manner or another with some sense of stability. Oh, and to that end, uh, I, I know that you and council have uh, had some discussions actually about uh, property tax relief. Uh, the, the bills are coming due in a few weeks for that. It's not today, uh, but it's soon. And uh, there's some concern, obviously, the people that don't have an income right now are very concerned about being able to pay that. Uh, talk to us about the, the relief plan that you've discussed here and how it might work. Yes, I uh, fully understand the concern, and we've always been in the position of uh, – being prepared for the April 30th installment date, so we have some time to put this in place. Uh, I know the recommendation from our staff is going to be that uh, they're going to waive uh, penalties and interest for any uh, unpaid uh, tax installment uh, for the next 60 days, and uh, that's certainly a help for those that need it. So we would uh, encourage people that uh, can afford to pay, and uh, you know they're still gainfully employed or they're, they're you know reasonably well off, continue to pay your taxes. We uh, the city of Hamilton needs the cash flow. We also want to be able to continue to employ people. And so in the absence of cash flow, we, uh, we're going to be very strained to do that. But for those that need the help and assistance and, uh, you know, a, a two-month deferral for all intents and purposes would help them. And, and maybe after that two months, probably another 30 days, uh, if need be, could be extended to that. So that, uh, I think, for a lot of people will be a, a help. Uh, it's not everything. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, assistance coming down from the federal government hopefully will land uh, in the next week or so. And for those that are unemployed and uh, uh, currently don't have any source of income, uh, if they can uh, get that $2,000 a month or uh, whatever the federal government's putting on the table for them, that's certainly going to be a help for them. doesn't solve all of their problems, but certainly I think will help them get through. 
And, and again, I would say, uh, you know, we're going to do our part. Uh, we expect, uh, you know, landlords and uh, banks and others to do their part as well to, you know, work on a case-by-case basis to uh, help those that need help and for those that can afford to pay, continue to continue to pay to help support the system. Have you worked at all the details about the tax relief program yet? I, I know, as you mentioned, you've got about four weeks to, to put this thing together and uh, get the details out. But for those of us that are paying property tax, and that should be all of us, I guess, uh, there's a, a payment due at the end of April, another one at the end of June, and then the final one is supposed to be at the end of September. If you give them a two-month holiday on that, Mr. Mayor, uh, does that mean they have to make a double payment in June, or are we going to stretch those payments out? Yeah, so I think it's likely going to be uh, uh, stretched out over past past June. So the next installment date is June. I think there'll be likely be another deferment in June for for another month. But it, you know, it's a deferral, so this is not a waiver of uh, of taxes. Uh, we need that revenue to be able to run the city. We we're not allowed to run a deficit as a municipality. So uh, at the end of the year, we need to be a hundred percent whole. And if we're not, then we're going to be relying on uh, federal and provincial governments to help municipalities, which we're, we're already starting to talk about. As you know, we're, we're suffering from a, 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 a decline, a significant decline in revenue from all the programs. The transit uh, revenues are all declining or non-existent. And a significant, significant increases in costs and expenditures to help support the, the shelters and all the programs that are happening to support seniors and everyone else in our community. Uh, that continues and, in fact, in fact, has ramped up. And so uh, municipalities will be working with federal and provincial governments for a, uh, I, I guess you would call it a bailout, uh, you know, a covering, a covering that expenditures that we're dealing with right now so that we can keep the community whole and not have to pass that on to uh, residential taxpayers, uh, you know, when we uh, reflect on our budgets next year. But, you know, having said that, uh, this is not a uh, this is not a grant or a waiving of taxes. It's a deferral, pushing it down the road until such time as the everything stabilizes, and then uh, I'm sure uh, the uh, uh, the finance folks will. For those that have had uh, that do have you know ongoing hardship, they, we can find a way of working through those on a case by case basis, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. But uh, this will be happening on uh, when we meet our virtual meeting on April the eighth. Uh, will happen. I, I have no doubt that there'll be an approval. Um, maybe, maybe some adjustments. I don't know, but uh, the likelihood that this will be approved is, um, you know, 99%. And uh, that then uh, people can actually expect and rely on that deferral that could help them if they need that kind of help with their property tax. Uh, the statement you issued yesterday, Mr. Mayor, about the extension of the Declaration of Emergency uh, uh, yeah. Protocol here, uh, are you taking your lead from what the province is doing here? Because it seems to be reflective of that, about uh, no gathering in public places, things of that nature, and closures of, uh, of non-essential properties. Uh, right. In your discussion, and, and I know that you're on a, a discussion on a daily basis with the medical officer of health and others that are involved in this, uh, yeah. do, you, do you foresee, if, if we don't see some improvement here, that, that these restrictions are going to be tightened even more? Um, you know, I don't know how much more we can do, to be honest with you, but, uh, you know, right now it's uh, virtually any public space uh, trail where people can gather. Parking lots are, are all being shut down. This is now on the advice of the provincial medical officers of health uh, flowing through. I mean, it's, there's a national cascade. So the national uh, medical officers of, of health makes recommendations to the provinces. The provinces make recommendations to municipalities. We're letting the experts and the uh, Folks in the science uh, kind of guide where we need to go. Uh, right now, as of yesterday, uh, we're, we're closing off, and I'm, this saddens me enormously, uh, the parking lots along Lake Ontario for the uh, waterfront trail uh, because people are gathering there in, in fairly large numbers to uh, use the trails. And uh, God knows I, I don't want, I, I would love to be using those trails myself. I uh, run and, and walk there all the time, but we can, just cannot have those kinds of congregations of people uh, happening in the same place at the same time. It just heightens the, uh, the opportunity for this virus to, uh, to spread. So those parking lots are going to close. Uh, all the conservation authority areas, uh, the waterfalls that we're all so fond of, unfortunately, those parking lots and areas are going to close. The whole idea being for our community to stop the spread, flatten the curve, plank the curve, crush the curve, whatever you want to call it, uh, is to stay home as much as possible and know that the uh, the federal, provincial, and municipal governments are doing everything possible to keep people whole through this process, 
uh, that they have some income, that the homeless are looked after, that there's going to be a way that we're going to get through this together. But to uh, stop this virus, uh, we need to stay home as much as humanly possible. We've heard some tragic stories, of course, over the last few weeks about uh, fatalities involved uh, with uh, uh, COVID-19, including long-term care facilities, Mr. Mayor. The city manages two of them, uh, Wentworth Lodge and McCastle Lodge, of course. Uh, Is the city taking extra precautions? Because by by definition, the the residents of those places are, of course, in high risk, but so are the staff. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, it's uh, such a confined space. Uh, you know, there seems to be, a, you know, limited room for people to separate themselves unless they all lock themselves in their rooms. And in, in some respects, uh, you know, they, there has to be that physical separation in long-term care facilities as well. But for the frontline workers, that's almost impossible to do. How do you how do you care for someone that uh, can't walk or can't feed themselves or, you know, having a mobility challenges and they need help and assistance? It's just not possible. So, there's a lot of focus on providing uh, the, the long-term care and retirement homes uh, the resources they need to get through this process. Oddly enough, I, I, I saw a Facebook video of a retirement home last night that just stunned me. Uh, they were, they were you know, virtually having a party inside the building uh, with uh, everyone kind of sitting next to each other, standing beside each other, staff intermingling with, uh, with everyone. Uh, you, can, you can fully understand when you see that image how... A, a virus can spread from one to another in a hurry. It's like a it's like a flash fire. It just just goes you know quickly. And unfortunately, the most susceptible people in our community are those very people. And so uh, my heart goes out to the, uh, the friends and family of the uh, folks at Heritage Green, both the staff and the uh, and the and the residents there. Uh, the, many many people have uh, have now been diagnosed with the COVID-19. I think there's a huge attempt to isolate that to that location. And obviously, there's then the contact uh, research that goes on between who's been in and who's gone out. All of those people have to isolate. So, But you can understand fully how it can spread so quickly in a, in a retirement home or a long-term care facility. So they have to be so, so, so careful on who comes in, uh, what, how they maintain that separation even within the building uh, as much as possible. And, uh, you know, God bless the, uh, the health care workers or the, uh, the support uh, staff in those because folks need services and they need help and assistance. Uh, they, they just need to do it in the safest way possible. Uh, we got a couple of minutes left here. I want to get uh, some information out to our listeners because we, I get dozens and dozens of emails every day asking me questions about the protocol and what things are in place. And uh, I, I direct them to the city website, of course. But uh, one of the other very helpful tools are the the virtual town halls. And you've got another one coming up tonight. Uh, yep. And by the way, 900 CHML will be carrying that uh, starting at 7 o'clock tonight uh, for the virtual town hall. It's also going to be on Cable 14, of course. Uh, and, yep. and this is an opportunity for people to have one-on-one sessions with you and the medical officer of health about exactly what is going on. So let's talk a little bit about, about that, because I know that, that seems to be uh, one of the best ways for people to get informed and get the, the, the facts that they need to make decisions. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to do that. Uh, you know, as you know, we do our daily updates uh, at 3.30 to keep people informed. Uh, on Wednesday, we do the 7 o'clock town hall to allow the community at large to ask questions. They have concerns. They have thoughts about, you know, what they're uncertain about. And, I, you know, it's an uncertain world right now. So it's reasonable that people have lots of questions because it's very, very difficult to share, you know, the day-to-day changes that are happening, you know, almost minute, minute by minute to hour by hour, day by day. So keeping up with that is a challenge. So our effort is to try and get as much information in the hands of the community at large as we can. And I think the town hall is a great way to do it. And I, I'm, I'm delighted that uh, not only uh, you're going to be there, CHML, I know yep. the, uh, the cameras for uh, CHEH are going to be there. So that uh, certainly gives uh, you know a broader audience the opportunity beyond Cable 14 and uh, in our live stream to actually get this information, uh, you know, firsthand rather than secondhand or you know through uh, through a news blog. So I'm uh, I'm, I'm I, I we've had some feedback on this and uh, people are appreciating the, the opportunity to interact this way and uh, we'll keep keep that going. Um, the more information that people in the broader community have, uh, the the better off we'll be. And I can tell you that uh, from my experience, and I'm sure you've moved around our city a little bit. Um, you know, the, the vast majority of our citizens are doing exactly what they're being asked to do. Uh, we know it's trying, it's challenging, uh, it, it, it's anxious moments. Uh, everyone wants to, I mean, I want to wrap my arms around the city and protect the city, and I can't. Uh, and I want to do that for my family, and I've seen many of us want to do that for our families and our friends. 
Uh, the best thing we can do to protect ourselves is at this moment of time, stay apart. Use technology. Uh, use uh, Facebook. Uh, I did house party yesterday with uh, with my kids, uh, which is uh, you know, one of the new platforms beyond Zoom and all the other ones that are out there now. There are so many ways that you can collectively have a visual conversation without having to sit uh, next next or beside one another or be in the same room. So take advantage of that technology. And for those that uh, you know have parents or grandparents that are uh, you know isolated, uh, you know check in on them, uh, give them what get them what they need. Let them know that uh, they're, they're, they're being thought about, or or a neighbor that uh, you know may not have family uh, that, that that checks in and often uh, you know at least check in from a safe distance. Ask them if there's any needs that you can fulfill for them. You know the, the way to get through this is through compassion, kindness, and and some tenacity. And uh, the tenacity we need to have right now is that this is probably going to go longer than anyone would have expected. Uh, but if we fail to do so, people are going to die. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, stay healthy, and uh, we'll be uh, listening for you 7 o'clock tonight for the virtual town hall here on CHML. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. You have, you have a great day. You too. Uh, and listen, I know that this is onerous for an awful lot of people. You know, they, oh, I, why can't I do this? Why can't I go there? If you don't like the restrictions, th- just adhere to them, because the longer we don't, the, and that curve st- continues to rise, the longer these restrictions are going to be in place. So we, you, me, each and every one of us have a role to play here. And uh, suck it up and do it. That's all there is to it. It's it's rough. It's it's not business as usual. But as soon as we continue to do this and we start to see that curve flatten, then we can get back to some sense of normalcy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We heard another financial uh, incentive announcement that was uh, announced by the Prime Minister yesterday. Here it is. That's why our government is also allocating $2 billion to purchase protective personal equipment, including for bulk purchases with provinces and territories. This includes things like more masks and face shields, gowns, ventilators, test kits and swabs, and hand sanitizer. Very timely, especially since we found out yesterday the province of Quebec has said that they may run out of supplies within the next 7 to 10 days if they're not replenished. So it is a rather dire circumstance. How are the politicians responding and reacting, and how are they addressing uh, this crisis for us? Uh, and I'm talking about federally and provincially, of course. I want to bring Peter Grafe into the conversation, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Good morning, Peter. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good, good. Staying healthy, I trust? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> Not needing anyone to give me germs, so that's good. Uh, good, good. Uh, how would you assess the way that, let, let's talk, start with the federal government here, of course, uh, with the, the prime minister and, and his staff, uh, the way that they have addressed this. I mean, you know, I don't know if there's a right way to do this. Uh, there certainly can be a wrong way. We've seen examples of that. But uh, this is a whole new ball game. There's, there's no textbook for this, is there? No, I mean, I think we see our politicians sort of struggling to figure out how they're meant to uh, to deal with it. So as you point out, the you know, the... The federal government, as with national governments in most countries, is uh, holding these daily briefings uh, to get a, give a sense of what's been happening in the country and what the plans are going forward. Uh, I think that's been effective in most cases in uh, reducing people's anxieties in terms of having a clear line of, of what's likely to happen. It does provide a space with the media covering it to have a bit of questioning or questions about why you know this approach or not that approach. Um, but I think the difficulty for our government is to uh, realize that there's also the formal uh, institution of parliament that they have to go through. So uh, on the one hand, wanting that kind of clarity and reassuring message, and I think in a way it leads them to then uh, see uh, parliament and the need to, de- to defend what they're saying to be a bit uh, more complicated. I think that leaves our opposition parties as well in a difficult spot where you know they, they do have a responsibility to ask uh, the tough questions of our government. Uh, but they also realize that in this moment, uh, you know, finding the right tone is quite is quite complicated. Well, we know that uh, opposition leader Andrew Scheer is going to hold a press conference uh, in about half an hour, as a matter of fact, an hour before the prime minister has his. be interesting to see what approach they take. Uh, and again, because there's no textbook or no playbook on this, it's very difficult. But it seems to me, from what we've seen anyway, and we'll t- continue on the federal line here for a second, if we could, Peter, uh, that uh, all, you know, th- there are no rules here. So, I mean, you know, all bets are off here. It's just whatever it takes. And uh, the, the, the money that's coming, dole, being doled out here right now, I, and, and in ordinary times, there's no way that any government would say, okay, we're just going to throw money at this, throw money at this, we're going to bail this out. Uh, there's a bill that's adding up here right now that we're not paying much attention to, which I guess is, to your point, where this uh, whole idea about accountability comes into play. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think Andrew Shear has probably not played this uh, situation in quite the right way. Uh, I mean, he has decided to make the argument around the question of this bill and can we afford it? And Canada's been run so poorly that we don't have the money when we need it. And there's not really a kind of a clear message. I think presumably uh, people who support a Conservative Party want the Conservative Party to be asking questions about. Well, I mean, if they are pro-business, uh, uh, you know, how are, how are businesses going to be supported? How are entrepreneurs going to be uh, supported? If they're supporting the Conservative Party because they are uh, you know, want a smaller government, then maybe Andrew Scheer should be asking questions about, you know, certain of the public health edicts, and is there a way we could achieve our goals, but, you know, is less constraints on people's civil liberties? Uh, I mean, on those things, I think you could see a Conservative Party asking kind of specific questions uh, that would needle the government. But the sort of the big picture, by simply saying we don't have the money or we'd have more money if, you know, Trudeau had uh, not run these deficits four years ago, it's kind of beside the point. I mean, we're in a situation, as you point out, that is exceptional. Uh, to have people asked to stay home uh, to really shut down the economy, uh, yes, it's going to cost a great deal. But I think, you know, the, the conservative answer, which seemed to be, well, you shouldn't spend any money because it's going to be really expensive, uh, is just completely beside the point in the current moment. So rather than dealing with kind of specific and tangible things that might be important to Canadians, maybe even unpopular in the moment as everyone rallies around the government, but looking out whether it's for people's civil liberties, whether it's looking out for particular constituencies of the Conservative Party and making sure that their interests are addressed, uh, would I think be much more effective than these kind of blue sky claims. I mean, uh, similarly, yesterday, Andrew Scheer was criticizing the increase in uh, the salaries of MPs, which I suppose is fine, except he's also getting that salary. And the law that's producing that increase was one that was in place uh, when there was a conservative government for 10 years, and they did nothing about it. So again, in situations like that, you have kind of a conservative party that seems more to be tilting at windmills and going for the hot take. And I, I don't think Canadians are that interested in that in the moment. I think they want a bit more substance on the, the particulars. I think we change our focus a little bit, don't we, in times of crisis like this, Peter? I mean, you're right. Let's face it. There are people that are just adhering to a political ideology, which is why they might support one party over the other. But I think instead of that, in, in a time like this, is, is maybe the number one request we're asking or maybe the demand we have of our government right now is tell us that you got our back on this. And, and, and if that means having to do something differently, so be it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the space for politics shrinks. Um, people's uh, you know, and this is why our our rights are always at risk in moments of crises, because we do want the solution. And in that context, we're maybe a bit too quick to, to trade away, you know, the value of things like opposition and the value of people asking difficult questions. Um, and so, yeah, it does make it difficult for, for opposition parties to figure out where to stand. But, I mean, I think we see, uh, you know, a variety of politicians who come and ask questions about specific things that aren't very clear. And so... Uh, you know, you have Mr. Singh, for instance, saying, well, what are we, you know, it's April 1st, rent is due. What's going to happen? Do, you know, does, is it enough for politicians like Doug Ford to say that, you know, uh, landlords shouldn't be tossing people on the street, or should we actually have, you know, specific regulations to prevent that? I mean, again, that's a kind of finer grain uh, intervention, but deals with a really pressing issue. And I think people probably have space for politicians who are engaging in that level, who realize that there's a need to, to move together, but that, Governments by their own, any government, uh, will prioritize some things over others or maybe not hear certain voices. And so we have a, a lot of value in opposition parties that try to broaden the discussion and make sure uh, you know, all interests are at least considered in, in this moment. And again, the the ideological concern here too. I mean, I can remember during the federal election campaign last October, uh, because of what happened here with the pilot project about basic income here in the Hamilton area, there were a lot of people that saying, well, maybe a federal government uh, should actually look at doing something like this. And it was poo-hooed by just about everybody except the NDP, of course, that said, no, no, we just can't afford to do that. But essentially, that's what they're doing now with a lot of the incentives and the and the top ups that they're adding to an awful lot of people. It's basically giving them that basic income, and it's happening in the States, it's happening here in Canada. Uh, so in hindsight, maybe it wasn't such a bad idea after all, Peter. Well, I mean, it's a rather particular situation. So you have, uh, you, you know, even some fairly, uh, you know, economists on the right wing of the Conservative Party, like uh, Ken Besenkul, for instance, making the argument, uh, you know, in the national newspapers about the need for uh, minimum income. So, that, you know, I guess it is an interesting opportunity to see what it means. I think the, the criticism of many on the right has always been that it would be a dis disincentive to work, and so it, it 
function in a slightly different manner uh, when people aren't able to work, like such as in the current context. So, uh, but nevertheless, I think it does allow people to see something like this in action and say, well, wait a second, um, there's a lot of insecurity at the moment in people's jobs and, and people's lives. Uh, having an access to that is a way of reducing those stresses and maybe allows people to deal with a difficult economic situation and the, the ramifications and knock-on effects in a useful way. So in a moment when people don't have you know, regular work, uh, maybe a basic income is actually a useful safety net in terms of providing a sense of security. So we'll get a chance to, to see a bit what that looks like. Uh, you know, people will also have the experience of having uh, you know, part of that taxed back when it comes to tax time if they've been, uh, you know, if they've been able to work in the rest of the year. And so uh, yeah, I think people will get a sense that it's not just free money, but it, it, it's a way to to deal with insecurity. So it'll be interesting to see what the net impact is at in, in terms of probably giving that idea more credibility than it would have had otherwise. Uh, well, we've all talked in the past, you and I, about the contrary voices, and some people just stick to philosophy on this. And I guess it gets lost on some people that are supportive of, uh, of the right-wing, small-c conservative biology, that both the basic income and, for that matter, the carbon tax were conservative policies that were adopted by the other parties. And, and they've morphed into what they presented here. But the concept was was initially, well, Hugh Siegel, of course, one of the basic proponents of uh, uh, basic income that was just in town here a couple of weeks ago to talk about that. But it, it just seems as if, okay, this is, this is a brave new world now, and we have to start looking at different policies. What are the remnants of this? If I can just ask you to crystal ball for a second here. We're doing things differently in government. When we start to flatten this curve and things start to get back to some sense of normal, uh, whatever that might be after this, Peter. Uh, do some of the things that the governments have enacted and talked about now stay with us, or is it just, okay, forget about that now, we're going back to the way we were? Well, I mean, I think there'll be a big push to go back to the way we were. And so, you know, when we see a uh, million and five, you know, unexpected uh, experiments going on, uh, I think it's up for people to push uh, for the continuity of some of them. So, I mean, suddenly in downtown Toronto, we see that there's all kinds of housing, it had just been used for people running these private Airbnb hotels, right? So if uh, our interest is increasing the supply of housing for people who actually live in our cities, then maybe part of the response after, uh, you know, after COVID-19 is over is to say maybe we have to change some of the rules around things like Airbnb. So, I mean, that's just one example. Um, but uh, there's all kinds of examples at the moment, even in terms of, you know, the cleanliness of our air um, the quietness of our streets and how pleasant that is. People are actually out walking. So, you know, what are the, I mean, it's a million and five different regulations and pieces of legislation that would be required to try and achieve some of these goods that we've been able to see uh, in the past few weeks. So, but yeah, that's not automatic. I think the push will be to try and get back to normal as quickly as possible, and there will be bills to pay, and they'll want to pay them through getting the economy going. Um, but there's a lot of things uh, kind of on the side of how we organize how we live together, that maybe we could make changes on, but it will require people to put, keep the heat on on the politicians uh, and, to, and to use these memories while they're still fresh to say, well, wait a second, we could do these things differently. The housing's there, it's just not being distributed properly, for instance. Peter, how are the governments balancing uh, what I guess are maybe two of the main concerns and priorities of, of we the public? First is public health, obviously, uh, when we, you know, the, the curve that we've talked about and the, and the virus itself. But the other, of course, are the economic impacts of that. Now, I don't just mean on a broad base uh, from a provincial or federal standpoint, but individual, our, our economic situation has changed drastically as well. Uh, are, are they are they doing what they need to do, uh, prioritizing those two issues? To because uh, there are those, of course, uh, that would say, well, those are both contrarian. I mean, one means you're going to have to spend a lot of money; other means you're going to have to, uh, you know, we don't want to have corporate welfare. I mean, you've heard all these ideologies in the past. How how do they balance that? Is it a fifty fifty split, or do they prioritize one over the other? Uh, I think it's a lot of firefighting at the moment, uh, to yeah. the extent that uh, we don't really know how the public health thing is going to run out uh, in terms of the timelines. And even uh, when we're you know, past the worst of it, to what extent does you know, economic activity return and how quickly? I mean, I think there's a lot of faith that we can uh, afford uh, to take. Well, I mean, it's not really a break, right? But we can afford to slow down the economy in this moment because when the, uh, when the crisis is passed, we can kind of get back to how we were before, and there'll be you know some difficulties with some business bankruptcies or people uh, you know being unable to get back into their jobs and so on. But generally, 
the capacity is there. I mean, it's a bit like uh, the idea of the of the Great Depression. There was a capacity to produce things like we'd never seen before. What was absent was people's ability to buy things, right? So the, the capacity to produce uh, economically and to return to previous levels of economic activity, I think, are seen to be uh, seems to be pretty high. And so then it's a question, if it's a matter of a few months, yeah, certainly there'll be an economic hit, but we can deal with it. But again, that's, you know, people who, for the most part, like these politicians, are continuing to draw salaries in this moment. And so I think there is a lot more misery uh, for people who have lost their, their jobs, who haven't had great social protection in the past, and for whom, you know, the money coming monthly uh, from the federal government will still leave things very tight. So in that context, uh, maybe our politicians uh, are better at listening to people like themselves and maybe have less of an idea of, of how hard this will hit certain parts of the population. Well, I suppose to that end, uh, one of the advantages here, of course, is since Parliament is not in session, they're in their constituencies right now, and, and hopefully they are listening to the people there that are impacted by this, because oftentimes you, you stay in Ottawa or in Queen's Park, especially for most of the MPPs in Toronto, uh, you're in a bubble, and you're not really in tune with what's going on, but they, I'm sure they're getting an earful from their constituents right now. And we can be pretty fickle. I, I know, I've seen the public opinion polls, as you have, Peter, that suggested that, uh, that you know, we both, we think both Mr. Trudeau and here in Ontario, Mr. Ford are doing a pretty decent job of addressing the issues. But if this goes on and on and people's trials and tribulations continue or get worse, uh, that can turn pretty quickly. Yeah, it certainly can. I mean, I think in that way, if we go back a couple of weeks, uh, the importance of making sure that Parliament is included and the you know the provincial legislatures are well are included in this crisis management, because it's mm-hmm. tempting for Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Ford to just speak to uh, you know, Canadians or Ontarians at a daily press conference, uh, you know, get some hard questions from journalists, but mostly it's a matter of, of projecting their views and ignoring the fact that having the consent of Parliament in the Ontario legislature is important for saying, well, ultimately the people are agreeing to the direction that's being uh, decided. Um, I mean, that's a bit uh, philosophical, I guess, but maintaining uh, maintaining that aspect of consent and legitimacy so it's not trudeau and uh, ford who are saying this but ultimately the people we elected who are making these decisions and uh, keeping that clear i think is important in sustaining the legitimacy uh, of our governments and what they're doing well we saw that with the debate uh, about uh, the, the first uh, bill that they tried to put through and the, the uh, attempt by the government as we found out later it was the finance minister himself that actually put that clause in there about uh, taxing power and uh, he's trying to legitimize it now by saying he wanted to use this leverage against the banks hither nor yon i mean w- this is this is where we get that balance again isn't it between uh, civil rights and, and rights and freedoms as opposed to government simply saying we're going to do whatever it takes here there's got to be a balance and uh, to that point i think the prime minister understands that now, uh, because he's talking about this latest package that he announced yesterday, uh, he's probably going to have to recall Parliament once again uh, to push that through, which is really the way it should be anyway, isn't it? I think so. I mean, we were able to uh, get through two world wars uh, with Parliament that functioned, albeit in you know, a different way than it normally did. Uh, I think we can uh, have a government that meets the opposition and explains what it's doing and ensures it gets consent for that. I mean, even in this case of uh, Bill Morneau, I mean, uh, I'm not usually one who defends the banks, but, you know, in a case like this, if if there's a desire to have leverage with the banks, they should go through legislation rather than, uh, you know, producing a whip for the the finance minister to use uh, in a somewhat arbitrary fashion. So, you know, the importance of having rules and following following them, I think, is important in sustaining the legitimacy. Because you're right, people at certain points, I mean, already come to, uh, some people ask questions, you know, is it really social distancing? Shouldn't we, you know, follow some kind of herb Im- herd immunity strategy like they've tried in parts of, uh, uh, you know, in Sweden? And uh, yeah, these are good questions to ask, um, but you need places where they can be answered and voiced. Uh, and so that the overall view of the Canadian people is, is you know, uh, clear and legitimate. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time and for the insight into this. Uh, Stay healthy, and uh, we'll talk again soon, okay? And you too. Peter Gray, of course, a political science professor at uh, McMaster University. Uh, to his point, by the way, about uh, the herd mentality, which is one way we can look at this, as opposed to the policy that we've been told to follow, which is physical distancing. Uh, there's an interesting piece uh, from a, a couple of the research doctors from Johns Hopkins University and Medical Center uh, that I was given today. Um, and it clarifies a couple of different things. I just very briefly want to go over a couple of the high points on this. Uh, because, you know, why do I really need to wash my hands like they say? Yeah, you do. Apparently... 
the virus is not a living organism. It is a protein molecule, like our DNA molecule, and it's covered by a protective layer of, uh, of lipid or fat, which, when absorbed by the cells, uh, especially in the nose, for instance, uh, changes the genetic code. Bingo, you got your virus there. But it is not a living organism, but a protein molecule, which means you can't kill it. It decays on its own, and the best way for us to do that is by washing hands. And it's the scrubbing of the hands and the warm water that actually helps to break that fat down and helps the the virus to disintegrate. So if you think you're going overboard, you're not. Uh, this is one of the reasons and one of the ways that we can do this. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got to get rid of the myths and understand the facts that we're dealing with here, that we do have a role to play. And it may sound insignificant. Oh, really? I need to wash my hands? Yeah, you do, because you don't know what you're going to be infected by. And uh, it could happen any place, any time, even if you're, you know, practicing safe distancing, even if you're uh, self-isolation. Uh, a good friend, Sue Prestige, uh, I saw in a letter to the editor the other day, uh, suggesting she was uh, blown away by the fact that she went to get gas for her car yesterday. Everybody, of course, is using this self-serve, and they're touching the thing. You don't know who's been on there. You don't know who has viruses on there. So we have to always wash. We always have to be cognizant of that. And I know it may sound tedious at times, but it's what we need to do to defeat this thing. So hang in there and keep doing what we need to do. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those parents uh, who have been trying to do what they can with their kids, whether it's daycare or something else since the schools have been closed, uh, and but we were told, remember when that closure were in, was was instituted, that uh, April 6th that it was the deadline and they're going to reevaluate it. Well, if you thought that was going to be it and the kids are going to go back to school next week, well, you didn't want to hear the premier yesterday. This is what he had to say. Effective immediately, we've extended the order to close publicly funded schools until at least May the 1st for teachers and May the 4th for students. We've also extended the closure of private schools and child care centers for another two weeks. So there it is. And uh, to really no one's surprise, I mean, let's face it. I mean, I know that there was going to be a grace period here and a reevaluation, but uh, the numbers are not going down. And, and clearly the idea of uh, physical distancing uh, is still very much in play here. But it does put an awful lot of pressure on parents and on, on boards of education as well. Uh, so how are they handling this, and, and how do we plan with contingency plans? Alex Johnstone is the uh, trustee and chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, District School Board. She joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to shed some light on this. Alex, uh, thank you for the time. Glad you're with us today. Good morning, Bill. I uh, hope you're staying healthy through this whole thing. I am. I'm practicing social distancing, working from home. As, as we all are, which is the way we should be following this, and uh, we're you know, hoping that the more that all of us do this on a continual basis, that uh, we can flatten this curve and kind of get back to some sense of normal. Uh, i got to figure, though, Alex, I mean, you're watching the numbers as we are, so you pretty much, I guess, were not surprised by the Premier's announcement yesterday. No, I think most families were not surprised. And to use your phrase, the new normal, I think that's in education what we're looking to start to establish. Right? Many of our families have undergone enormous stress, the loss of a job or two. Um, many families are feeling completely isolated at home with kids, um, not knowing what's going to happen next, worried about the health and well-being of their loved ones. There's a lot of pressure. And right now in education, uh, we've been busy as a beehive behind the scenes, uh, working to get a system together that commences on Monday. And uh, that will start to offer a little bit of a new normal while we work through social distancing. So what's that going to uh, amount to? I mean, maybe walk us through this. So give us a, a thumbnail catch, sketch as to exactly how this is going to work. Because I, I, I know that he talked about the first week of May, but we're not even sure about that date. So, I mean, what you're going to establish here uh, may be with us for some time yet. That's right. I think so. Behind the scenes, our staff have been working incredibly hard. I've never been more proud of our team and of our community. Uh, truly, um, it, all kinds of folks have come together in order to to make this new normal happen. So behind the scenes, we've seen grit and determination, planning, training, intense problem solving, and at the heart of all of it has been uh, profound and deep compassion for our students. 
some of what um, I was speaking on the phone this morning with one of our local grade five teachers around the planning that she's currently doing. And um, uh, what we know is that our teachers are going to be offering a menu of options. Many of our teachers have already um, been utilizing online tools with their classrooms and uh, what parents can expect is more. Um, yesterday, we did receive a memo from the province of what some of the expectations will be for our students. So, for example, um, students in, uh, from kindergarten to grade three can expect approximately five hours of work per week per student with a focus on literacy and math. Um, and then as you move up to grades nine to 12, it's three hours per week per course. When we get those, um, the hours, um, uh, many parents and many members of our community immediately wonder, well, how are you going to be able to provide um, instruction? Uh, many of our students, especially here in Hamilton, do not have a device at home or do exactly. not have access to the Internet. And it's not um, like they can go to the library these days, is it? Exactly. There's a huge equity challenge. And that's where when I talk about the entire community coming together, it has been... Uh, it truly has been a whole community coming together in order to to raise our children. Um, we have had uh, support from corporate partners such as Apple. Um, Microsoft has been a tremendous support in terms of um, helping us with technology. We have, um, uh, with Apple, they have entered a partnership with us where we will be looking at um being able to provision all of our students with devices. Um, and for those who do not have internet, um, these de some of these devices will have um, data available similar to a cell phone so that they can continue to connect. Uh, we have partners like the Hamilton Community Foundation, where there was an extremely generous donation from some anonymous person in the community in order to ensure that our most vulnerable students are not left behind and that gaps continue to be uh, filled. And that, that donation is supporting both the Catholic and public school board. Um, we look at uh, all of the work that's been happening with our teams. So locally, two weeks ago, when um, everything came to a standstill, schools were closed, um, and at that time, it was for uh, two weeks post-March break, mm -hmm. we began reaching out to other countries, school districts in other countries, to understand how they had already been living and experiencing uh, the pandemic. Um, at one point, we were in discussions with the city of Hamilton um, coming up with creative ideas and with regards to how internet can be offered to our our local communities uh, and our most vulnerable city uh, uh, families. That of course has all changed with um, the partnership with Apple as well as um, our partnership with HP um, and our community partners. And so we are very fortunate here in Hamilton to have an enormous caring community. Um, and the hard work of staff, um, going back to what instruction might look like, each it's going to differ across the system. Um, each class, each grade, teachers had our, and our educators, our ECEs, our social workers already had ways of connecting with our students that uh, were online or over the phone, and they'll continue to do that. It will simply be increased. I think what's important to note here is that this will, education will not look the same as an in-class experience. There is nothing that will replace that physical relationship between the teacher in the classroom. You cannot replicate that virtually. However, we, we are moving forward to ensure that the school year is not lost. Our students will be able to graduate and, uh, and we really we're drawing on the policies and mechanisms we already had in place in order to allow us to do so. It's innovative, and uh, I just wanted to have you on the show here today, Alex, to show that uh, for people that were saying, well, you know, what's the board going to do? Uh, you guys have been active on this ever since the first announcement was made. I want to stay in touch with you over the next couple of weeks as you roll this out, and uh, we'll talk about how uh, effective it is and, and how it's impacting teachers and students. Thanks so much for the time today, Alex. Stay healthy. You too. 
Alex Johnson, of course, the chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Now, this is, as she said, uh, Alex, the, the new normal. Uh, and it's it's a little daunting for students, of course, that are not used to this. I know we had a debate about e-learning in the past, and I know some people are saying, aha, see, it's not so bad after all. It's not as good as the classroom experience. That's, that's I, I think, a given. But it's what we have to do, obviously, because of public health reasons. So how are we going to do this? I mean, this is also going to be daunting for some teachers, too, that are trying to learn a different way to communicate their information. Well, two Mohawk instructors recently studied the challenges and the opportunities of delivering online learning, and it produced a, a faculty toolkit to support connectivity and collaboration. Uh, Leslie Marshall is Associate Dean for the Center for Teaching and Learning at Mohawk College, uh, who is behind this project, and uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, explain this. Leslie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. I love the fact that we've got a connectivity here with our education system uh, that we saw that, okay, there's going to have to be some re uh, reliance on e-learning here, uh, which I know has been around for some time in some way, shape, or form. But with the uh, the, the emphasis on it right now, uh, you guys rolled up your sleeves pretty quickly and decided, okay, here's 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 the, what you need to get this thing rolling and, and to ease the transition into this. Yes, yeah, so... Um, I and uh, some other faculty had previously done some research on engagement and student success for our continuing ed uh, education programs uh, that are, are done online. And then when this crisis came up and we had to switch to uh, emergency remote teaching and learning, uh, we used that as a basis. And the team at the Center for Teaching and Learning at Mohawk, uh, together with our IT uh, and student services got together and we put together um, a toolkit for our faculty of strategies, tools, um, approaches to teaching and learning that would help get faculty uh, to the, this emergency uh, remote learning uh, as quickly as possible. What kind of Maybe the phrase I want to use here, uh, Leslie, is what kind of headspace do the instructors have to be in here? Uh, those that are used to being in front of a classroom or, you know, lecture hall, whatever the case might be. I know you've got smaller classes at Mohawk. But, mm -hmm. but this, is, this is a different approach to teaching. I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, go on this site and read this. But that's not teaching. Teaching is actually imparting and dialogue between, between instructor and student. How, how does that work? Right. Um, Mohawk is established as, as a blended learning institution. So most of our faculty have got some experience with teaching at least part of their courses online. And all of, most of our students have some experience with uh, engaging with learning management system and, and taking some parts of their courses there. So we kind of had a, a solid foundation with that. In terms of the, the headspace um, and approaches to teaching and learning, uh, it, doing it online, the, the, the approaches to lesson planning and, and how you tackle classes is very much the same. Uh, you know, we encourage our faculty to um, break things out into chunks, that you, in, you get the students engaged with the content, you engage with them, uh, give them opportunity to connect with each other in the same way as you would do in class, but it's just in a different environment. Uh, you know, we recommend that you know, for, for faculty, if they're thinking about doing an online class, think about how you would teach it in class. You're not just going to stand there and talk for an hour. So don't do a one-hour video lecture and post that. That's not going to work. So break it out, chunk it out. Uh, we, our, the structure that we recommend is, is read, watch, complete. Give the students something to read. Give them something to watch and give them something to, to do, an activity to do that they have to complete before they move on to the next element. So just as uh, in a classroom environment, as, uh, as having dialogue and, and, a, and a back and forth on this is such an important part of, of an exchange of ideas, uh, I would think that it's, it's paramount importance to try to encourage that, that sort of, well, it's going to be online dialogue, I guess, in, as the alternative here, but that's still got to be part of the, of the teaching experience, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, we, we do encourage that um, dialogue. One of the things that we found in our research it, is that um, having a sense of connection and engagement uh, with the instructor is really important. The sense that there is actually an, a, a person on the other end of the screen that is connecting with you, that is reading, 
what you're sharing, watching, whatever videos you're posting, uh, and is giving feedback and communicating. And there's a need for that kind of uh, social interaction, not just the straight uh, feedback on how you're doing, but connecting uh, with them as a person. Uh, how adaptable is this? I mean, you've worked on this for your Mohawk programs. Uh, we just heard from uh, from the Hamilton Board of Education, uh, and I, I'm assuming there's going to be some similar experiences with the Catholic Board here as well. Uh, is 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 your program adaptable to to different uh, structures and and to different criteria and different uh, uh, protocols for, for instance, high school and, and elementary school? Well, I I don't know what the, the challenges they are facing are, and I don't know their context very well. Uh, I can only really talk about. Uh, what our experience is and what we've learned. And there are teaching and learning strategies that, that work well online. One of the biggest challenges right now, and you've discussed this on, on your show before, is bandwidth. That yeah. you, to have that engagement and that dialogue, we would love to have live video chat interactions with all our classes. But that disadvantages a number of students who don't have uh, reliable access to, to the internet students in rural areas, students in Six Nations, uh, they don't have reliable access to uh, internet or the bandwidth demands that we're seeing where there's outages, things are breaking up. So we encourage um, our faculty and the students to use an, uh, what we call an asynchronous approach where uh, you know, students who are home maybe have their children at home, so they're having to do their work early in the morning or late in the evening so we make it available to them at any time, that they don't have to be specifically in one place in one time to interact with their teacher, that the, the content is there, the learning activities are there, and we go through cycles of uh, putting out the content and what they need to be doing um, at any particular time. Students work on that. They put that back. Uh, they get the feedback on it, but it's happening um, over the course of a day or two rather than happening um, immediately. It's not ideal. Um, you know, we, we all love to have that immediate feedback and interaction, uh, but we have to be conscious of the circumstances that students are in right now. Exactly. Mohawk College on the cutting edge as per usual. Uh, Leslie, congratulations on this continued good luck with it. I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Leslie Marshall, of course, Associate Dean for the Center for Teaching and Learning at Mohawk College. Online learning, uh, maybe not the preferred way of teaching and learning these days, but uh, it's what we're going to have to use for the short term anyway. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.